Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of the IVSA Livecast. Today, we are joined by Kirsty Pickles, who is the Clinical Assistant Professor in Equine Medicine at the University of Nottingham, and she'll be talking about her experience working in academia and research. Welcome to the show, Kirsty. Thank you. Nice to be here. So to start off the podcast today, it'd be interesting to know whether you have worked as both a practicing vet and a researcher, or did you go straight into research? And what were the benefits of the path that you followed? Yes, I have worked as both. Um, <clears throat> probably like quite a few people who do do research, I, when I graduated, I had no intentions of doing any re- research and that sort of just happened on the way. Um, I went into practice after graduating <clears throat> and was in practice for a year. And then I really wanted to do a residency. At the time, there weren't internships weren't really available. Uh, they hadn't really become a thing. So I was very lucky to get a residency after only a year in practice. And I did my residency at Edinburgh with um, the brilliant Paddy Dixon. And as a part of the residency programme, which was a three-year programme, you had to do a, a, a master's by research project, uh, which was sort of part-time over this three-year residency period. And at the time when I took that residency, I wasn't excited about that prospect at all, but it was sort of a, a necessary evil. That's how I thought about it at the time to, to doing this residency. And I was very much interested in the clinical uh, aspect of the residency. Um, but actually when I did the MSc project, which was um, with Paddy Dixon and also Bruce McGorham, which was looking at cytology of the lower respiratory tract, um, I actually found it, it really interesting and um, fascinating and had blocks of time to do this research project, which I, I really liked. And um, consequently, by the end of my three-year residency programme, I knew that I wanted to do a PhD and, you know, had, had actually found the research aspect of, of the residency a massive bonus. So that's how I got in, in involved in research and interested in research. Um, I think the benefits of that of that route were the fact that I did some clinical work too. You know, I, I still do both clinical work and, and research, as lots of vets do. Um, I guess, you know, if you are sure that you want to go into research, you could go straight from, from vet school into research. But then I think it would be quite hard if you wanted to do clinical work afterwards, because you wouldn't, it would be quite a while from graduating to, to doing clinical work. But certainly I know people who have done that. Um, so I'm not saying that that's a bad route to follow. It's just, you only know what you know, really, don't you? And, and it, it worked for me and I, and I liked it, but um, I don't think it, it matters too much which route you, you follow, to be honest. Brilliant, thank you for that. Um, some would think that being a researcher and a clinical practitioner are incompatible pursuits, but could you persuade an aspiring vet student that they're in fact complementary? And are there any um, transferable skills that you've developed in one area that you could apply in the other? 
I, I think they're definitely complementary. Most of my research has come from my experience with clinical work and, and the unanswered questions that are there. Um, most of my projects have developed from frustrations in clinics and trying to further that. I mean, there are a lot of, there's a lot of evidence-based very medicine research nowadays, um, which is very much driven by, by clinical work quite rightly. And then in, in turn that research is taken back into the clinical work and, and furthers it and progresses the clinical work. So um, I, I definitely think they're compatible. Um, and with everything, there's lots of transferable skills. Um, you know, if you are in clinics, then you are developing lots of communication skills and um, collaborating, working as part of a team. And of course you can take that into, into your research. They'll be really valuable. Um, equally, you know, from research, you have to become organized. You're very good at managing your time. Um, you, of course, develop your writing skills. And that is, um, you know, very useful when you go back to clinics, collaborating with other research teams, um, you know, it is, is a really valuable skill and actually furthers your research um, hugely. And, and that's a, a great transferable skills. And even if you go on to not other non-clinical work, they are great transferable skills that, you know, to put on your CV to, to transfer across to pretty much any other professional role. So I, I think the main, the main reason that people struggle with um, clinics and research together is because of the, the time limiting factor. It's hard to keep both clinics and research going because they're, you know, you, they're both, they can both be all consuming. So you do have to become very efficient at, at, at time management, but it's certainly doable. And if they're clinical research projects, then your clinical work can be part of your research. So you, you can in fact be doing the two things at, at the same time. And as you progress further up the research sort of pathway, you tend, rather than doing the um, some of the work, the data analysis and, and the writing up yourself, you know, you'll have postgraduate students doing that work and you'll be taking a more supervisory role. So that there's, there's certainly ways to make it work. I think it's great that you confirmed that they're complementary because so many vet students I know um, are too scared of going into research because they think it's not what they want to do. But it's great to know that they do, that you can work kind of collaboratively as a, you know, both a, a practitioner and also a researcher. Yeah, and I think it's all about taking baby steps as well. I mean, you know, you're, you're not going to go straight in and, and be out of your depth, you know, uh, as a, you know, vet student about to graduate, if you were doing some research, you know, you'd be doing a project with supervision. And actually, in that situation, far more important than the project itself is the project supervision. If you have good project supervisors, it will be a great project, regardless, you might look at the project and think, this is working in a lab with rat cells, 
that has no interest to me at all. But actually, if you have good project supervision and you are working in a good team, that will be a great research project. You will gain a whole load of transferable skills and it could really set up your career for the future. So, um, yeah, I, you know, the, there have actually been research studies that show the younger you are exposed to research in your career, the more likely you are to pursue a research part within your career, which is, you know, one of the reasons why we now have the vet student research projects, because we know exposing them to, to some degree of research actually sparks that interest and they're more likely to go on and do MSCs, PhDs later on, which, you know, which is great. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Uh, so what is your area of research and what sparked your interest in this field? So I'm probably slightly unusual in that I don't have one main area. I've, um, you know, a lot of people follow a fairly straight career trajectory and have one area of research and you know and that grows over time they build on it um, and I have been a bit more of um, life happens and my career happens around that so um, I've kind of got involved and interested in, in different research as time goes on, basically through my clinical work, as I said before. So during my residency at Edinburgh, we saw a lot of horses with asthma and, um, and my MSc by research was about the cytology in asthmatic horses. And uh, so that then led on to my PhD. And so I was very interested in that area. And my particular cell focus was the mast cell. And as sort of a side project of that, I then started looking at mast cells in horses with cyphostomin burden. So then became interested in mast cells and parasitism um, and sort of the wider immune response, um, which then led to um, a PhD grant application uh, for somebody else. And we got funding for that. So it's, it's so it just, kind of has morphed a little bit. And then later on, um, I was seeing a lot of head shaking cases. I had um, a brilliant opportunity to work with John Madigan during when I was working in New Zealand and he was out there for a sabbatical and we started doing some head shaking research. And, um, and so then I've gone on and taken that further and done a lot of research in head shaking now. And so just different kind of things have spun out of my clinical work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very much been informed by the clinical work. I think that's brilliant. It's nice to know that you don't have to go straight into something with like a fixed mindset that kind of things will come to you as you progress throughout your career. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, you know, having that inherent interest in, in the cases that you see, and that's, I guess that's the bonus of of keeping going with the clinical work. Um, you know, I think if you go straight into research on on a particular project and you're not seeing clinics, then um, you know certainly you can 
and, and certainly for fundamental research, I think that's more the way things go. You, you build things over time. Um, I, because I have moved around a fair bit, it, it can be difficult to move your research with you, which is another reason why sort of projects come and go and you, you know, my projects are varied. But if you stay in one place and you have a good team around you and the research group grows, then, you know, of course you tend to um, put more and more projects in on the, on the same area. I, you know, so it, it, I guess it just varies person to person and on their career. That's great, thank you. So I've read that academia can be a particularly competitive profession. Would you say that veterinary science is as competitive as other fields? I guess that's hard to say because I have no experience of other fields, but um, certainly residency programmes are very competitive. Uh, I don't know that PhD studentships themselves are competitive, as in if you are going for a PhD project, I think that would be much less competitive than going for residency. What is difficult is the funding. Um, and we're going to really see an effect in the probably next five years, I'd say, of COVID-19, because a lot of charities have really had a massive dip in their income and a lot of research is funded by charities. So some charities have halted their research funding of programmes um, currently. So, you know, without the funding, we can't do the research. So the main problem is getting funding actually if you have the funding it's reasonably easy i would say to get a phd project program going um, if you are interested in doing something like that my advice would always be to, if you have an idea of the subject area even if it's you know sort of um, equine medicine or you know, small animal cardiology or something, I, my advice would be to make contact with people working in that area, tell them that you're interested, because then when an opportunity does come up, they know someone who is, who is already interested. Um, you know, these PhD programmes do get advertised, but a lot of, you know, the veterinary profession is a small profession and sometimes it, you know, having a, a foot in the door is, is a really, really good starting step. The fact that you're known, you've shown the initiative um, to take that first step of getting in touch with people, I think speaks volumes about your interest in the, in the topic. Excellent, thank you. So you've worked in research departments in different countries. Would you say that topics being investigated and approaches to research are different from one country to the next? And if so, could you give an example? I think the topics being investigated are very similar. Obviously, there's some diseases that only occur in, in some countries and not others. Um, I, when I worked in New Zealand, you know, that's um, a really unique situation and actually they have very, very little infectious disease there. So not a lot of equine infectious disease research would go on there, but certainly, um, you know, head shaking, you know, I transferred that from Edinburgh to, uh, to New Zealand and then later to California, you know, that's a worldwide problem. So, it, you know, easily transferable. And that is the case with lots of research. 
Um, what does differ is the funding opportunities and the ethical, it's not the ethical approval, you will always need ethical approval for a study, but what is allowed in different countries is different. So in Britain, we obviously have really, really strict guidelines of, of what's allowed um, without a home office license and anything basically that's invasive requires you to have a, a home office license. Whereas um, other countries are more lenient in, in what's allowed before you would need a, a licensed project. So that, that's certainly different. And you only learn about those things when you're there. Funding opportunities um, are, a, are a, a little different. And again, take a bit of time just to find out what's available in that country. But when you're working in an institute, you know, those things, um, you're working with a team. So those things become apparent quite quickly. Research funding is pretty tough to get, regardless of where you're, which country you're in. Brilliant, thank you. So coming from the UK, how were you able to apply for research and academia jobs abroad? And what motivated you to want to leave the UK? So we are very lucky to graduate as members of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in that degree is transferable to quite a lot of other countries. Um, and so after I'd finished my PhD, a position came up at the vet school in New Zealand at Massey. And that was advertised, I think it was advertised in the vet record. You know, these things are advertised internationally. And I applied for it um, even back then, 2004 it was, you know, I interviewed um, over the internet on Skype and um, got the job and then my degree was recognizable in New Zealand. So all you have to do is apply to their, the New Zealand Veterinary Council and um, get your degree sort of, you, you have to apply to become a member and have your degree recognized, but that's basically just an application process because um, the Royal College has reciprocal agreement with them. Um, so that was very, very straightforward going to New Zealand when I went to the States, that was um, a little bit more difficult in, in that you can work in research in academia over there, but, but if you want to do clinical work, you have to apply for um, that particular state's recognition to practice veterinary medicine. And each state is different. So um, I was in California, I was at UC Davis, so had I wanted to work on clinics there, I'd have had to have sat their boards. It's not even a case of just, because I graduated prior to AVMA accreditation, um, you know, I would actually have to sit their boards and their state boards, which I had zero interest in doing at that point in my career. I was very happy to do just research, in which case I, you know, I, I could just go straight over there and do it. Um, and, and as to why, what made me want to leave the UK, um, I, was, I was very keen to go to New Zealand to experience, um, you know, life in that country. You know, just experience something different that, um, as I said before, my, my career has been a lot driven by my life and, and just sort of life happening around me as well. So, 
um, when I went to the States, that was because my, my husband, he's a software engineer, he got a job in Silicon Valley. Um, we decided that was a, like a, a good life opportunity that we would go and spend time over there. I knew John Madigan from my time in, in working with him in New Zealand when he was on sabbatical there. So, you know, really, as I said, sometimes it, it's, it's who you know as much as what you know. And so I could make contact with, with him at UC Davis and ask if there were research opportunities there. And that's how I ended up um, working there for, for a few years. Um, so I've, I've always been very keen to, to travel and make use of my vet degree in other countries and, and see where it can take me rather than, and there's pros and cons to that, you know, I've had great experiences in these countries and, and it's been phenomenal, but at the same time you are, you know, it, it's not a straightforward career pathway because you are moving around you know if you stay in one place you can build a much uh, more straightforward career pathway so it, it's I wouldn't say it's the way to um, have a very um, straightforward career trajectory but um, it certainly gives you a lot of life experience and I, I, I do think that experiencing different institutions is really good because if you only ever work in one institution you only ever see one way of doing things. And I think it's really valuable getting some alternative views on how to do things and, and gain life experience as well. Brilliant, that's really great advice there, thank you. Um, how much research do you have to do every year? What research outputs are required in order to advance in your career? And do you have to res res secure research grants? So how much research you have to do every year is very much dependent on your position. So if you are, and, and nowadays universities tend to have people on, things have become much more commercial. So you tend to be on a research contract or a teaching and research contract or a teaching contract. And there are different pathways through academia and you tend to be on a, um, a research track or a clinical track because people recognize it is hard to do um, clinics and research. And of course we're teaching as well. So um, how much research you would be expected to do would depend very much on, on those. And if you're on a clinical track, you might have to do no research at all in a year. Um, whereas if you were research track, you would be expected to, um, it tends not to be, necessarily every year but you would need to be you know getting research grants every so every so many years to because that would probably be paying part of your salary that would be justifying you know sort of part of your your work and um to keep getting projects going and to keep having postgraduate students you would need to be getting the research grants um you Universities are, you know, are funded through something that where, whereby their research publications, the quality and the quantity of them are looked at and then money is divvied out between universities according to, to that. So there's obviously a, a big incentive to publish. And so that is taken into account for things like as you progress, as your career progresses, 
Um, you know, it's not just about number of publications, it's about quality of publication. So getting what you put publish in a good journal rather than, um, you know, in, in a lower quality journal, there, there's pressure to do that sort of thing, but it's very individual as to your particular role. So I couldn't say any particular number of uh, publications or projects. That's really interesting. Thank you. And just to finish off the podcast today, what would you say is your proudest research achievement? There's two that really spring to mind. Um, the first would be um, securing my first big grant, which was um, a, a PhD being funded. Um, so that was that was a, definitely a really big moment, which is sort of from a administrative point of view, really, and more than anything else, and sort of having knowing I could write a successful grant application, that which you know is obviously pretty important. So that that was a key moment, but from a sort of research performing research point of view a, um, a very proud moment would be being part of the team to definitively prove that head shaking is associated with um, hypersensitivity of the trigeminal nerve in the horse so we showed that I was part of the team that showed that head shaking horses um, will react with their their trigeminal nerve will fire at one tenth of the stimulus that a control healthy horse trigeminal nerve would fire at and so you know that for hundreds of years that had been a really elusive thing and the trigeminal nerve had been suspected to be involved from back in like the 1890s but it hadn't been proven and we conclusively proved that so that you know and that was published and and that felt like a very big um research achievement to me that's brilliant so you get you get interested in the minutia being <laughs> being interested in research so to someone else you know that's probably not a big thing but when you're interested in that in that kind of thing it becomes a big deal to you no, definitely. I think that sounds, I think that's a really interesting um, research um, thing that you've, you came up with. I think it's um, something that, yeah, I think what's great about research is it's never things that the ordinary person will think about, um, but you have so much knowledge on that particular subject, which I think is great. Yeah, you, yeah, you end up disappearing a bit like a, a rabbit hole. And it's, it's one of, you know, research is very much the kind of thing that the more you learn about an area the more you realize you don't know and at the end of most research projects you have come up with more questions than you have answers so it drives the next research project and um and you you end up just on a natural continuum really um and one research project can effectively be then preliminary data for your next project you know because you are just expanding on that 
So it's nice when things follow neatly like that. There's lots of frustrating moments, I, I should also add. I don't want to end on a negative note, but there are lots of days, you know, when you're working in a lab, your ELISAs don't work, you know, things like that. So, you know, um, there's certainly lots of frustrating days, but working with a team, you know, like you have bad days on clinics and when you're working with a team, those bad days are made so much easier by the team you're working with and um, being able to take time out and, and spend time with them and just laugh about that 29th failed Eliza and you know try and figure out why it failed and you know hopefully 30th time lucky exactly yeah brilliant no brilliant messages there thank you so much so thank you Kirsty for taking the time to be with us today we really appreciate it you're welcome thank you I'd like to say a big thank you to you for listening and for all your support. Don't forget to check out the IVSA Liverpool Facebook page for updates on new episodes and feel free to drop us a question if you have any. If you are enjoying the IVSA Livecast, please subscribe and share with all your friends. Thank you.